All right, sad alert. If you don't like it, then skip this episode and go listen to the Pastor With No Answers Masturbation episode number 31 for the 10th time, you sicko. And quit asking for part two, by the way. The masturbation doctrine is clear, and this issue has been inerrantly stated clearly. So move on. Just to be clear, this isn't one of those sorry for your loss moments, only because I didn't lose anything. As I write what I'm reading, I just witnessed a mother grieving her 40-year-old son as he was laying there lifeless in a casket. She was seeing him for the first time since hearing of his death a week earlier. She happens to be a dear friend. Her whole family is, actually. Her daughter and I were close in high school and still are. Right now, I specifically, though, am talking about Mrs. Val. Because right now, I'm thinking through the eyes of a fellow parent. And I love Mr. Arthur, too, the father. But I've spent countless numbers of hours working with Mrs. Val. And and this is a person who's old enough to be my mother. And, and I'm talking from my heart right now that what it means to have a non-blood-related person who loves you no matter what. And she knows some darker sides that other people do not. And she deeply respects me as pastor in her life. And that's on her. That's not something anyone, including myself, have asked for that. What I really like is I'm asking more for her opinions than she is for mine in the work setting. And there's just absolutely no chance she can ever be impressed with me when she knew me as some gangly, pimply high school punk hanging out with her daughter. In fact, perfect idea. You want to keep mega church pastors accountable? Just put that older lady that was working at the school at the front desk as his admin. I can just see it now. Hey, uh, Mary, can, I, can you block my whole week? I, oh gosh, block my whole, she'd be like, now, now little Jimmy, we're moving, we're moving beyond the pastor admin relationship right now. What the hell do you mean you're blocking your calendar? You better you better unblock the shit out of that calendar or I'm calling your mom and we're going to talk to your wife also. See, that's, that's how we handle stuff in the South, man. From the South, that's how we handle. All right, so why am I even talking about my friend's loss? Well, first of all, and obviously I'd be stupid to say this in a denigrating way, but if you don't have a kid right now of your owns. <laughs> oh my gosh. I think God is allowing me to say funny stuff to set me off to not just be so uh, emo right now. But if you don't have a kid of your own and you really can't fully understand, because I'll tell you right now, there were a lot of people listening casually to this episode who are fellow parents when all of a sudden they heard any set of parents losing a child and their attention was caught. As I guarantee you, that happened with a bunch of parent listeners of this podcast, because all of a sudden, you're aware that someone is going through a nightmare that you don't want to imagine, like someone is living it. And and now it's, it's like a specific person. You know that it's going on just in general, but now you heard of a specific person. Well, for me, it's not just a name. It was a friend, like it's family. That's freaking Mrs. Val. And 
I'm close to a lot of people, but I was thinking this is the closest friend who I've ever seen lose a child. I've gotten close to families after they've lost their child, but I literally felt sick to my stomach as I watched and heard the cries of a mother just weeping over her deceased son like a mother I truly care about. And the first answer to my question as to why am I even talking about this? Well, it's because I'm stopped dead in my tracks. Like this was completely out of the blue. So I'm stopped in my tracks and this is what I'm thinking about right now. But I also feel as I get older, I have wisdom, all right, to offer mainly to younger folks, wisdom completely the result of longevity, i.e. getting older and learning from my damn mistakes. So not a superiority sort of wisdom. In other words, nothing that you wouldn't have at my age if you were teachable in the least, or maybe it's just been taking some time for this. At some point, we have to we have to give you the answers. You knew we would finally do this. You knew it, and then you would love it, and you would be like, man, Joey really does have all the answers. And then you find out that I've been using all of the patron money, especially the portion that I promised to help kids in developing countries I was using for. Oh, gosh. I want to tell you clearly something no one can really ever prepare for. And I wish someone would have like grabbed me by the ears and warned me, warned me what I'm warning you of right now. When you have your own child, you enter a new world, not only of love unimaginable for another being, but you also are from that moment haunted in the back part of your mind all the time, varying levels as you allow. And this mortal creature you love so much you realize is frail. And at any second of any day, the math doesn't lie. It could be us next. None of us are in the clear. And I'm morbid. I'm just stating the obvious in a way that maybe we don't typically like to. So they're born and so are all of those powerful feelings. Next thing you know, they start to be independent then they start doing more and more without you. Next thing you know, they leave. I'm not there yet, but getting close with my oldest. But none of your feelings ever change a bit. You can't unsee the blind love perspective of a parent. Like, that's my child. That's my baby is what you'll always be to me. And here's what all of us would honestly admit as parents the the percentage has to be astronomically high. So I'm going to just go on a limb and I'm going to use absolutes here, but please forgive me. It's maybe just for effect. A lot of us would keep a stranger out of this pain of losing a child if it came to sacrificing our life. Now that one's debatable. This one is not. Not one of us would sacrifice our own child for another's like, I'm not going to sacrifice my child for anything, and I'm sorry, not your child either. If I have the choice, you will do that. I will not. And it doesn't have anything to do with me preferring you to have the pain, to spare myself from it. It's it's nothing to do with the parents at all. It's rather a, my... I'm incapacitated to back off of any protection that I could give my kid, and that's how parents typically feel. 
You'd have to be a very new listener if you don't know that I can flip the switch fairly easily. But I I wrote a funeral for my friend's son about 30 minutes after seeing Mrs. Val forced into the car despite her resistance, wanting her baby boy all by himself at 40 years old. I've never seen Mrs. Val cry those sorts of tears at any degree. And so hearing those initial ones was 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 something. So I came home and felt so broke broken, but also in times like these, I get a fresh reminder of what I feel one of a, a huge ingredient. And that's posture of I'm in need, like this pain is too much. Please rescue me completely. I believe, but help me with my unbelief. If the cross was the greatest moment in history, it had to have solved the greatest need. And that's worldwide rescue from our freaking selves and death for crying out loud. So I'm I'm also at a place in my theology in which I have more faith in God's love to hold me now rather than counting on my adequate amount of faith that will equate to God deciding to save me all of that. I I I tend to think more poetically about God, I guess, because the more I learn, the more I realize the little bit that I really know. And there's infinitely more we don't know about God than what we do, but we don't really live our lives that way, I don't think. So when you get as old as I do, you realize how fortunate you are. At 44, I haven't lost at these levels a child, a spouse, a sibling, not even a parent yet. But at this age, I feel like I'm over the optimism that everything is not always going to be okay. Once you learn to deal with that and still flourish. And it's not that you're a negative person. I'm just used to the concept of disaster hitting in any moment's notice because I see it happen to the people I care about, people that I'm close to. I mean, what do you expect? Of course, I'm going to just accept that or not accept that. So a lot of us have had to even relearn a balance between having a belief in prayer, but accepting genuine cluelessness to the real depths or how it even works in the first place. It's like now we can see how much of a savior Jesus's words are for us in telling us, just take one day at a time. You can't handle All the pain of this world, if I show it all to you, especially in your life, because there's nothing we can really do other than enjoy each day we have that is livable, knowing we may get one that doesn't feel like it at any time. And so for my black and white mind, it's either take one day at a time or be miserable with fear all the time. And I realize that outside of the rare chance of all my children dying at the same time, I'm going to take this mental state of either angst or acceptance to the grave or to a nursing home if my brain is dying faster than the rest of my body. Like I'm talking to my peers now, our kids, a lot of them, you know, very young and dumb. We only know that because we knew how dumb we were at that age and how dumb we still are. The beginning of wisdom is realizing, oh, wow, I'm still. (laughs) But many of our kids are risk takers, some of them very trusting and Kids, y'all are like our 
walking time bombs that can destroy our lives any second. <laughs> some some of us, it, I think, unless I'm the only one, some of us, even for a split second, will second guess even having these kids. Like for a split second, I'm like, what have I done? What have I done? And that's very short-lived. The moment you see one of their faces, even if it's just in your head, and you immediately settle in your heart again, it's worth the risk. And what the hell was I just thinking about a second ago? So anyway, I was going to have the rest of this episode to literally be me giving you the whole memorial service I gave. Basically, word for word, I was going to give it to you. But I was like, Joey, damn it, you're 90s emo guardrails. Hello, you're hip hop first anyway. You know, hip hop in the prefrontal cortex is, I guess, what I'm trying to say. I'd have to look it up to see what I'm talking. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm a dumbass. I, a lot of you Tommy Boy people wonder what I was just about to do there. I am gonna, <laughs> I am gonna drop that in the Patreon. I, I am gonna, I'm, I'm going to let my emo boy out on the patron feed. So maybe I tell you that what, maybe if you're sad, won't you? Yeah, you can listen to it if you're a patron and, and you're sad, but you also have to ask yourself, do I want to become sadder? After the funeral, we sang together and many of us were close. Many of us, not so much, but it felt deeply connecting. And in the presence of our loving creator, it was heavy so heavy for this family and still still to my point the father mr arthur who just lost his son smiled at me and said man isn't it great to have family and he's talking biological and spiritual like my daughters all the way to his wife and so a whole room, hearts full and empty, seems like a dichotomy, and it's not supposed to work until you're back in that space again and you remember how it felt last time. Desperately not wanting that little bit of relief to end, I think, is what the ones really suffering are feeling like, but they know that it will. And we're singing a pop worship song, and you guys know how sensitive I can be about a lot of church stuff. The space for anyone to be however they need to be. Some of the deepest mourners were the most worshipful, and I just, man... I had just been as brutally real as I could with with pain, so no one was turning a blind eye to the human condition. But as we worshiped together, there was a spirit there with everyone who was going through such pain. Now, I understand your objection. Just because you felt moved doesn't mean it's the spirit. And I get that and admit it is a possibility that you're right, that it was just emotions. But I've also had a lot of experience distinguishing the happy, fun, joy feelings and regular day beautiful stuff from a spirit of joyous union, what I'm identifying to you as the Holy Spirit. And at the very least, the feelings I'd identify as supernaturally spiritual felt distinctively different from just the joyous ones in a real awesome way. It's something. 
All right. How about that? That's my position on the Holy Spirit and its interaction with me. It's something. So then I go home and trying to take a break and and kind of relax a little bit. I open up Facebook and I see a dear friend of mine who is so happy, remarried. She lost her husband 10 years ago and she remarried to her now wife. And I saw the outpouring of affection and hearts and thumbs ups and comments. And I saw people that I knew from the church I'm a part of who were probably not, as you would say, gay affirming, put hearts on there. And I saw people from our church who are for sure very much so gay affirming, put hearts on there. I don't know if that means anything to you. It really does mean something to me to be a part of, I would call it my community because a bunch of the people that I just named are are not all at the same church anymore, but just having a community where love really is prioritized. Like I really do feel that I know people that want to try doing that. I was like, man, life is beautiful. And I'm glad I'm not the one with this pain right now. But rest in peace, Arthur Rico Jones, uh, for someone who is truly gone uh, too soon. Uh, that's cool that the ones closest to you say that you still had a full life at 40 years old. But I'm looking forward to a big Jones homecoming family reunion for all of y'all. But until then. So one of my kids is full of shit. Like, seriously, to the point we had to take one of our kids. I'm not going to say the gender because then you'll break it down to 50-50. But one of our kids had to go to the emergency room. Intense stomach pain. And I asked him, I said, is the pain manageable? He's like, oops, I just used the word he. And he said, um... What's manageable? What exactly do you mean? I said, like, you can't take it. I was like, can you take this pain anymore? Ten is completely unmanageable. He said nine. Freaked us out a little bit. The pain was real. He went to the hospital. They had to give him a little bit of morphine. I'm sure that was a little fun for him. But then when he got home, I asked Priscilla, is everything okay? What's wrong with him? Basically, he's full of shit, is what she said. So, that is... That is the verdict with him, and I think that is a problem easily solved. You've seen Dumb and Dumber, I'm sure. So, yes, that's what's going on in our world. I want to thank all of you who are patrons and to tell the whole world that us as a patron family helped a young man named Akram attend an international primary school. Basically, we chipped in about 90 bucks. $90 to change someone's life forever. That's pretty freaking cool. But if you're a patron, you also have your own podcast feed with exclusives, but you also get all the interviews and conversations right after, after they're recorded, unedited, unfiltered, way before everybody else gets them. For example, we have had a 
Westboro Baptist Part 2. Yes, you may not know there was even a Part 1, but you can Google that because I don't know the number off the top of my head. But we have Westboro Baptist Part 2, where I brought in my friend Jack the Greater. He's the father of the Jack Hoy duo. And last time it was me and the the younger Jack. We also go into why we're even, we even having conversations with the likes of people at Westboro. But our patrons have that already with our lowest tier. It's $8 tier called the collection plate. You also have a lot a live feed for most of the conversations we have on this podcast. If the guest permits, you get a signed thank you card from yours truly, a shout out on the podcast. Like I said, we help out with outreach every month and you have your own patron only Dropbox folder. And friends, the Boom Boom Room is coming. Thank you guys for supporting this show. Means a lot, homies. Before we talk to Father Josiah, the Eastern Orthodox OG, the OG of Eastern Orthodox is dead. Well, who is that? Peter? I don't know. But before that, we have Robbie, Hain, and myself. We get a little into what I would call moral dilemmas. We also get talking about pacifism to transition, though I have one request. It's not Happy New Year anymore. I had someone say Happy New Year to me. Like that window of time is gone. One month has passed. That's one twelfth of the whole year. At what point is it not new to you? So it's not Happy New Year anymore. I have, uh, I think one of the funniest, I don't think farts are that funny. Like I just, back in college when people would say, hey, I just like, you know, that's just not funny to me. What is funny, however, is an old dude in line in a grocery store who either accidentally farts and he kind of looks around that I will die. But even funnier is when an old dude just <laughs> lets it rip and doesn't give a shit about it. I mean, I just, one of the top five funniest things too, and I'm, I'm curious if you guys have ever seen this, is walking into a men's restroom and there's an old dude at the urinal with his pants and his underwear <laughs> down. Have y'all ever seen that before? Dude, I, dude, I've gotten free meals doing that. <laughs> I am dead serious. Oh I've my god! My dinner paid for twice because I was there to walk into a bathroom, <laughs> drop my pants down to my ankles, and go. Oh my god! But oh, it was amazing. <laughs> you talk about making a, a restroom uncomfortable. It was unbelievable. As I get older, I'm having a bit of a problem, and what what it is is like I'm sitting there, or I'm standing. <laughs> I'm standing there peeing and <laughs> and when I'm done it's like I know I know there's more pee there but I can't get the pee out and so basically and it's it's because my pants are still up and it's just how it's positioned and I'm telling you if not half the time when I zip my pants up and then I start walking then it's in a position to where it starts coming and so I was, you dribble so I'm thinking right so I'm I'm thinking to myself 
if that problem is worse when I'm in my 70s, I will yeah. do what those old guys are doing. And I think that's why they're doing it. They're just like, I don't want to dribble in my pants anymore. And I don't care if people see oh my. my butt. Are, are you dribbling when you're at home or is it when, you got, when you're when you busy and have something to go do? Yeah, yeah. Like like being at work or something like that. At home. Yeah, 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 at yeah. home, yeah. Yeah, no problem at all. Just, no you problem. just pull the pants. I think your Cobra Kai's fine. <laughs> I just think you're just going to – I think you just have to relax a little bit more in public. <laughs> right. <You just> have <laughs> I know Robbie's a, a big-time movie watcher. Hey, do you, you watch movies a lot? I'm, I'm more no, movie I, than I TV, both. honestly. Like all the Netflix and stuff. I just, yeah. there's very few shows that I will commit to. And there's tons that I know that I would like. I just don't want to spend that much time watching TV. I know that makes me sound pompous, but it's just, I would rather, no, 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 I'd rather be sense. constructive and do sense. other things. I rewatched it. It won Best Picture. I don't know, 2009, but 12 Years a Slave. I, I just think it's a remarkable movie. It's one of the hardest movies for me to watch, but it's remarkable. Mm-hmm. It's historical. It's really eye-opening. But the the beginning scene, as, as my faith has changed a lot, I saw this beginning scene with new eyes. So basically, the movie jumps in to part of the story that you're going to see unfold halfway through the movie. So you're not really sure what's going on. But basically what you realize is you had tons of slaves in a room in their sleeping quarters. And the main character was one of the few slaves that were actually free. And and basically some southern redneck assholes go up north and basically trick him into getting in their truck but he's literally stripped of his freedom that was legit in new york and then brought to south and there is nothing he can do nothing he is a slave it doesn't matter if he says i'm free it the beginning scene you have a a woman that you could tell she's awake and she's staring at him but then she tries to seduce him and he takes her hand and he moves it and then she tries again finally he caves and so you know basically she gets on top of them at last very short she immediately rolls off and immediately starts crying like like sobbing because for her she's just like i can't believe i did what i just did and then for him he's thinking i don't know if i'm ever going to see my wife again but if so i guess i just cheated on her and i can't help but to think our our number one commandments is to love god and to love others so so love should encapsulate everything and it just seems like, I just want to propose this as a question. I'm not going to say this is where I'm at, but it seems like, man, these these people are probably going to live and die as slaves. They can't have like intimacy and just seven minutes of closeness with someone. Like I, I just, I saw it and I was like, you know what? I wish that she wasn't super sad. And I wish that that was something that they could say, man, in this God forsaken life that we're living we got to experience something beautiful that God created. How how awesome would that have been able to be if there was no guilt? You know, I know I'm going to get in trouble with what I'm talking about right now because everybody's just like, yeah, but it's adultery. Yeah, but it's, it's the law. And I'm just thinking, yeah, but look at their situation and a God that loves them. But I'm ready for pushback if you guys have it. Two, two, two questions. Is one of them married? He is. He had a family. Okay, okay. So, but but he's and my second. Yeah. And my second question, something you referenced earlier, this is like 1850s, 1860s. How did he get in a truck? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> no. Uh, okay. So yeah, my main question was okay. So there was adultery involved. Yeah, he basically cheated on his wife that he doesn't know if he's ever going to see again. Like, is he just supposed to never have sex? Like is, uh, you you know, would, would the slave owners allow them to actually do a ceremony? I see the same thing even here, even today with uh, the Latino community or the Hispanic community where people have come and they don't know if their loved ones have passed 
they're completely separated and that develop relationships with folks here. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, we, we went to, my wife and I went to Ghana with a team to help build houses. And if you don't know, Ghana, Africa is a very, very much so Christian nation, very Christian. And a lot of these Ghanaians, they accept Christ and yet they are in a pol- polygamous lifestyle and these these men are financially supporting and taking care and loving these women that they're married to and it's like okay all of a sudden and they just have to adopt hmm. to our culture you're talking about some very unique context and context hmm. informs everything yeah i mean well you said the keyword context <laughs> you know it's like yeah it's really a lot you know it's everything and in that movie fu- actually a funny thing joey i don't know if you remember this but like i think it was maybe the week or two after i started at james island uh, with you guys i came into work and and you were like robbie are you okay and i was like yeah i'm, I'm fine i just i watched 12 years of slave last really? night and I'm, really, I'm really mad at, at white people right. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah that'll like, do it to you i was you know, mad at me watching it was, that so, weird. It was so weird you know such a weird feeling but like <laughs> but i haven't seen it since then actually so when um when you talk when you brought it up i rewatch the trailer to try to refresh yeah. lots of things. Thinking about that situation, it's such a tough situation because he was born a free man. His, I think it was like his father was a freed slave and then I think his mom was born free. Or, and so he had free papers. He was literally stolen. You know, he was, he was tricked, but they took, they took his papers, destroyed it, and then auctioned him off as a slave. I think like Washington, D.C. And so, yeah, like his... His context is he's still a free like to him he's still free he's going home like he right. was fighting he was fighting for it the whole movie you know like his mind was still at home and and everything her context I don't think she ever was free I think she was always there you know right. and, and so that can be I mean that's a tough dynamic both of those are tough dynamics but at the same time it's kind of it's difficult because I think for him in his mind he's still married so right. so yeah like I, I just a choice. You know, right. he makes a choice in that moment. He is hurting and he makes a choice in that moment. But I think at the end of the day, like as far as like right or wrong, I think that we all make choices and then he has to live with those consequences of that. Because now that's carrying around in his heart that he has a wife and kids at home. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether he will be free again, like he's still carrying that around. And so but for her, still She's carrying it around too, but in a different way. Like I'm thinking of Priscilla in that situation and it would really bother me, but I don't think I would be angry. I think I'd be like, I I understand. I hate it. (laughs) Like, I hate that you did that. I don't like the thought of it, but I understand. Because the, because the context informs it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's like when, when I'm, I'm trying to condition my mind that when I, when I start with the word sex, you start with, it's a gift and it's for our enjoyment for crying out loud. If that's the context, it's a gift and it's for our enjoyment. That's that to me interrupts this story from being just absolutely right. immoral. Yeah. It, it it's it, yeah. to me, it's a moral dilemma. I've talked to people on this show who are total pacifists and I just, I don't think in this world that's possible. Like I, I don't, I don't know if you could prioritize love while you stay completely nonviolent. If you have a person who is causing great harm to someone that's innocent, and the only way that you can stop that from happening is by being violent towards the person doing it, I would say it's unloving not to step in for the person who's innocent. 
Mm. You know, right. and I'm not saying yeah. we love yeah. the person that's innocent more than the guilty, but bottom line is the innocent person isn't the problem. Mm. They are a victim and they're, and they're being mistreated. I, I really don't see how straight up hundred percent pacifism even works. And, and I, I don't apply it. I just, there are certain yeah. things in my life that if they happen, I'm going to fight. I'm going to. Sure, sure. Interestingly enough, I don't know if I told you, like, I started studying martial arts again. Nice. <laughs> so, like, I don't like fighting. I have fought before, but but I, obviously that's a you know right. the reason why you study right. that. And, man, my body is hurting this week because I'm doing jujitsu with a friend of mine in the class. He's a lot bigger than me. 100, 150 pounds bigger, maybe a small guy, like the small, you know, like I'm tall, but I'm like slender. And so I'm like, you know, I'm really appreciating all these hypothetical situations just in case I do have to throw some bows <laughs> with these uh, football just players. About, <laughs> about throwing some blows, Hayne, tell people about badass grandma with bear mace. <laughs> this is the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the best story I've heard in a couple of months. I'll put it that way. Maybe this, this year. is a, This is this is a great story. So Asheville, uh, North Carolina, is a, a more progressive, more liberal community. We are a sanctuary for homeless. Mm. And there's a lot of things about that that are really good. And it also brings a lot of challenges mm-hmm. as well. One of the challenges that we've had in the last few months is they'll just squat on a piece of property. Um, so lots of different challenges. Well, uh, North Asheville is a, one of the ritzier areas of the city. And uh, it was a lot that some homeless had squatted on. And the owner, she was an old lady, just kind of drove up and said, this is private property. You have to you have to leave. And they got aggressive. You know, hell no, we can. This is our right. We can squat where we want to. Blah, blah, blah. This is open land. You don't live here. Blah, blah, blah. blah. And um, she left. Well, she drove back, came, came back around a couple hours later and said, I'm going to ask you again to leave. <laughs> and they cussed her. You bitch, blah, 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 blah. Walked into her car, pulled out a can of counter assault she did. bear mace. She did. She did. Right. And she maced them with bear mace. Bear mace is like a small fire extinguisher. Oh my gosh. It'll shoot 35 feet. It empties in eight seconds. And normal pepper spray, the, the active ingredient is it's like 0.2%, whatever the pepper is that's really getting you. Bear mace is 2%. So it's a 10 times oh my what you would get from just a single. Because mace is supposed to be effective with humans. It is. Yeah. I mean, mace oh, is effective. absolutely. Wow. Mm-hmm. So something that you would use against a grizzly bear, she lit their world up. Oh, my God. I mean, when emergency crews rolled up, they are rolling over the ground. It's soaked into their shirts, yeah. and they're wiping their eyes with their yeah. shirts soaked in, in, in bear mace. Right. So we got in this, this conversation because <laughs> we work, I work with a lot of guys that are concealed permit, you know, concealed carry guys. And I'm like, you guys don't need to bother with that. You just need a can of bear mace. <laughs> That's all you need to carry to end any confrontation immediately. No one really gets hurt. You know, no one's going to die. But you are going to neutralize the, the problem. And what is it? Just absolute yeah. burning? Like on your face? Burning, yeah. So all, all your nerves. I mean, your lungs, breathing it in, your Jeez. eyes, around your nostrils, your ears, anywhere where your skin's thin. Yeah. It just mm. it just burns. Whew. It burns and burns. I, I can't mean, imagine. Oh, yeah, my gosh. It, it's crazy, though. As you were telling that story, I think the war in my heart, honestly, I think maybe Jesus was asking us to be pacifists, and I can't do it. I think that's maybe more where I'm at. 
uh, what would Jesus do? You know, I don't think Jesus would have sprayed them with bear mace. Mm, I can't imagine Jesus saying, squirt them with bear mace. I could see him say, you know what? Just turn the other cheek. I don't know. As I say that, that sounds (laughs) dumb. I don't know. I don't know if, I don't know if it's like completely pacifism necessarily that he was like calling for. I think that maybe it was to dig deeper. Cause I I thought about when you said that statement, I was thinking about like the woman who was caught in adultery and like all these men stood around to stone her to death. That's violent. Like, and so I think, I think more so. We've come a long way. We have come a long way. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, (laughs) I mean, they were going to stone Mary to death. I mean, they could have. I think it was more like a call to dig deeper. I mean, we, we all have children on this call. My son was very different than my daughter. Right. (laughs) And he has, I mean, he has some major anger and rage issues. (laughs) It is like, it is amazing that a human so small and so cute. Oh my gosh. So cute can be such a terror. (laughs) Like, oh yeah. I mean, you tell preach, him no, preach. and he is going to, like, literally, I think Carissa said that he threw a chair at her. Dang. He's, he's, he just turned two last week. Like, and wow. so, like, think that, like. Good luck, man. <laughs> yeah, for real. All, most of my conversations, what are you feeling right now? And let's get to the deeper reason underneath those feelings. And let's yep. come to an appropriate response to that. Because the feeling necessarily isn't necessarily bad, but it's you going out of control with that feeling. Yeah. That is taking it to a place that now. Now it's a problem. Yep. Because if you punch your sister, you have, you've, it's a cycle of violence. You've you've escalated this anger. Yeah. yeah. You know. So I, I have a son that's similar, and you'll appreciate this story. This was a few. This was years ago. We were teaching our son to use words. It's like when you're upset, you can't start swinging, buddy. Yeah. You have to use your words first. Yeah. So we had a, an episode where I heard it, he and his older sister arguing in the hallway, and I'm like, oh man, I could hear him getting louder and louder and louder. I'm like, oh, he's going to swing. So I stick my head out, out of the doorway, Cord, look at me. And he turns and looks. I'm like, use your words, buddy. He, he looks at me like, thumbs up. Like, got this. <laughs> he, turns, he, he turns to his sister and goes, Leia, you say that again, I'm going to punch you in the vagina. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and I sit back. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Don't laugh. I turn and then he looks back at me with two thumbs up. Oh my god! I, did it. I did it. I used words. <laughs> I want to give you a backdrop on Eastern Orthodoxy and this podcast. So you have probably never heard of the band Luxury, have you? No, sir. Okay. So Luxury is like a little known indie band that they were on a a Christian label called Tooth and Nail. Really an awesome band. Well, they have a whole documentary now how they almost died in a car wreck on the way to a big music festival. And now they are all, I want to say three out of five, they are all Eastern Orthodox priests. Yeah, that priest. and, and yes, yes. So they they actually went through whatever you have to go through to do that. And, and they grew up evangelical like me too. And so I did an Eastern Orthodox episode because I, quite frankly, before that, I had no clue. I just did sure. not know anything. So in episode 198, we had the luxury guys on, on here. Great dialogue. Well, check this out. My brother produces this podcast. He, it's funny. We were both raised in very fundamentalist, uh, Pentecostal backgrounds. And it's interesting. I'm kind of taking a more progressive 
many people would say heretical angle of Christianity where my, where my brother has converted to Eastern Orthodoxy. He even sent me a picture of his robes. I don't know if he's an altar boy. He's an old altar boy if he is, but he was participating in some of that ceremonial stuff. But but yeah, so my brother is full-fledged Eastern Orthodox. So I want to read you. I texted him today and I said, so is this Father Josiah just super smart? Why did you suggest him for Eastern Orthodoxy part two? He says, why? Was it a shitty interview? I think he's a good speaker with a fairly popular YouTube channel. He wrote the book Rock and Sand, an Orthodox Critique of Protestantism, and he went through Protestant seminary. He knows both perspectives very well, and I think he represents the Orthodox tradition, traditional perspective well. I said, no, I'm just preparing for today. And he said, well, here are the reasons. I don't think he is overly cerebral or intellectual. He's not a philosopher. In addition to theology, I think his focus is church history. And he said, have fun. Tell him I'm a big fan of his work. His YouTube videos are very pastoral. You'll have that in common. Tristic Nectar is the channel. And then he said, ask about your 10 kids. And I responded, so he wasn't in a cage match, Royal Rumble, with other priests and won. So (laughs) here you are. Here you are. So I've got tons and tons of questions. But is that true, 10 kids? Thank God it's true. Yeah, I have 10 kids and I have three grandchildren so far. That is awesome, awesome, awesome. How old is your oldest? My oldest it turns 32 in February, and my baby's eight. Gotcha. Golly, that's insane. Every, every I, two and a half years, basically. Wow. Wow. Is there a similar to Catholicism approach to birth control? I don't know if that's a, too personal of a question, um, but belief system-wise? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, until 1930, orthodoxy... Catholicism and Protestantism all universally condemned birth control. Uh, uh, Protestants themselves didn't change their mind on it until the Lambeth Conference. The Anglicans were the first ones in about 1930. So yeah, yeah, the Orthodoxy in as much of that it's just uh, old and traditional and does what Christians have always done. Yeah. Has, yeah. That, has that perspective on having kids. Yeah, for sure. So how did my brother do, by the way, with, with his snapshot of of you <laughs> probably only his appreciation <laughs> what's that probably only his appreciation for oh, gotcha, gotcha. might be a little mr. unrealistically high but, mr uh, humble father josiah uh, all right know. so i don't know gosh i'm super excited about about these questions because it's it's interesting i have a background in apologetics went through seminary so my brother and i we've just been having theological debates basically super fun texting back and forth as far as the the sort of authority that the church has I'm just like, how can the church have that kind of authority and, you know, the afterlife and all of that? So I'm going to start with a super deep question, and that is, do you think that Catholics and Protestants are a bunch of dummies? (laughs) No, but all right. So serious. How do you view Catholics and Protestants? Are are they a part of the body of Christ that you're a part of? Is that brother and are those brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, that's a that's a great question. Uh, it needs to be answered very carefully. Yes, sir. Uh, affirming two things at the same time. First, I'd like to say that uh, I'm I have a, a scad of deep, long time friendships with yeah. uh, both Catholic believers and Protestant believers. Yeah, um, and I have received unbelievable blessings from my Catholic and Protestant friends. And I bow low 
uh, before many of them who are far better Christians than I am. And I look to them as, as models in so many ways. And No Orthodox thinks that uh, uh, is a very, very serious matter. The church never would have separated our communion over trivial matters. And that this has been a matter of separation for at least 800 years. Wow. So by, by saying that uh, there are, you know, that by affirming the goodness and the beauty of Roman Catholic and Protestant Christians, I am in no way trivializing what our fathers have considered such serious matters right. that we would actually break communion uh, with the Pope. Um, that's very serious. Now, Protestantism, the way that the Orthodox looks at, at ooh, ooh, let, let me let me stop you right there because that I didn't know that. So, did the whole church become? what we now know as Catholicism and you guys broke away. I always thought that you guys had the direct line from acts to the disciples and the Catholics broke away from you guys. And then the Protestants broke, broke away from you guys also. And you guys have just been the original gangsters the whole time. Uh, that's close to an Orthodox perspective on it. Okay. But I would, I would say this look for, and I'm using 1200, no one knows exactly when the great schism, which is the greatest catastrophe in the history of Christianity, Whoa. Is, is what oh, absolutely without question. Whoa. Uh, the great schism, the loss of communion that we have with the Pope of Rome and and with Western Christians in general is considered really, I think, by most to be ortho- Orthodox to be a, a terrible tragedy, heartbreaking, tear deserving for 800 years of weeping, basically. Wow. And no one can say exactly when some people use 1054 uh, as a date because that was a, a, a very difficult situation. But no one, no, no Orthodox or Catholic at that time thought that was the end of our communion in 1054. Right. Certainly by right. the Fourth Crusade sack of Constantinople, when the Latin Crusaders got diverted from going to the Middle East to throw the Muslims out, and they actually came into Constantinople and killed our bishops and priests and raped our nuns on our altars. We recognized then. We weren't one. This is on the on the street level. To be under the Pope means you're no longer in our church. This is how uh, the Orthodox uh, think. Yeah. So yeah. certainly by 1204, uh, that was that's the case. Okay. Now, now we don't think uh, uh, the doctrine of our understanding of the church. When you asked me about the body of Christ, the language that you used presupposes a concept of church that's invisible. And that has wow. no physical, tangible realities. The invisible church is the doctrine of, of evangelicals, but wow. it has no it has no precedent in church history. So you if, if you held that view and you were anywhere in the in the Christian world, fourth century North Africa, eighth century Gaul, twelfth century Constantinople, you would be considered a heretic. So gotcha. no, no one believes every image in the New Testament that describes the church is concrete and visible. The church is a body. I've never seen an invisible body. The right. church is a building. The church is a field. The church is a vine. There's there's scads. There's there's tens of images for the church, and everything's visible. The, the evangelical concept that the way that you get in the church is by secretly believing in Christ yourself, accepting, <laughs> Je- accepting Jesus as your Savior, and then Jesus connects with you by that act of faith and incorporates you by that action into his body. It's a right. nice idea, but it's heresy. Um, you know, the, the church, traditional Christian, people who, are, who care about what Christians, tr- Christians have always thought, think the way you get into the church is by baptism. 
When you're baptized, what that's what baptism is. It's entry into the church. You right. actually get uni unified to Christ by baptism. That's what we think baptism is. So for us, we would never use that language um, that we're all part of, you know, one body that you that has no physical reality. You don't have to have a bishop. You don't have to be receiving sacraments. You don't have to have gone through through baptism, but somehow you're in the church. Uh, for us, we would say, look, you can. That doesn't mean that that you can't, wherever you are, call out to God, begin a life of prayer, and that that God's gonna gonna nourish that, and you're gonna build a, a relationship with God in that sense. Right. But, but we would describe that as kind of like an unofficial kind of like dating, basically, like you're you're dating, but you're not married. <laughs> okay. And you're, yeah. you're not, you know, you're not officially family. You're not certainly you're not one flesh. You become one flesh by literally eating the flesh of Christ in the Eucharist in which his flesh mixes with you and you become one flesh. The divine human relationship is most often presented by the prophets in the scripture under the image of marriage. And someone isn't married until you're married. And so we would at one and the same time say, no, I'm sorry, an evangelical is not in the church of Christ. But we wouldn't say, you know, that person doesn't know Christ or is it, he doesn't or, or is somehow a pagan in total darkness. We, we don't believe that. Is there, is there, and, and I want to get to the afterlife. There's so many things I want to get to. We, we might have to do a part two if you enjoy yourself, but the, the afterlife are evangelicals are, are, is if they're from y'all's vantage point also, but are, are, are evangelicals like, are they going to go to heaven? Is there souls at stake? Well, you know, once again, you're asking me a question from a distinctively <laughs> evangelical perspective, you know, just like you right. said, are, are evangelicals in the in the one body of Christ? I know what you mean by that, but it means something totally different than what we mean by being saved. When you ask an Orthodox, are you saved? The first thing he thinks about are the tangible threats in his life, death, sin, and the devil and the, de and, and, and the demons. These are our enemies. And when an Orthodox is thinking I, you know, about, well, what do I need to be saved from? Those are the three things he thinks about. I got to get rid of wow. my sin because it's killing me. These right. devils are torturing me, and I just I want to be done with them. And I know death's coming, and I need to get through that. So for us, those are the things. And so therefore, we would say, well, yes and no. And a typical Orthodox would say, well, yes, I am saved, meaning I've been delivered out of the dominion of darkness and Satan into the kingdom of light, which took place at baptism. I'm being saved, meaning that I'm heeding Paul's admonition to work out salvation with fear and trembling. We actually you guys believe, call that sanctification? Yes, but we actually believe that there's something to tremble about. Most evangelicals don't. So we we are we are trembling because the old man, though it has been dethroned, it's still in us. And Paul says, "Kill it, put it to death." And that's that requires asceticism. That requires spiritual accomplishment and. Uh, you can't just rely on some spiritual experience of the past because Jesus came into your life. That means that you don't have to you don't have to worry about yourself. We think relation we, we think salvation is a real relationship that you have real freedom, which means if you want to spit in Jesus's face halfway through your your life with him and turn your back, you can. And that is really dangerous. So we think that being concerned about nourishing your relationship with him, Having fear, developing your love, developing your salvation is something that you work out. And we think salvation finally will be accomplished when he returns. There's a universal resurrection. Our bodies, which have been buried in the earth, will be raised, rejoined to our souls, and will be fit to inherit the kingdom of God. So for us, we talk about salvation the way, forgive me, the way the New Testament does. 
That word sozo is the Greek word for save. And it's used in the in the New Testament in past tense, present tense, and future tense. Evangelicals tip, typically only use it as a matter of the past. Are you saved, brother? This is what they're talking about, which is a legitimate, it's a legitimate question from right. our perspective, but it's not the emphasis of the New Testament. The emphasis in the New Testament, the most often used tense is the future tense. So for Christians who are concerned about salvation, they're concerned about the future, the coming of the Lord, the great judgment, and whether they will, as our Savior says, those who do, do good will, go, will come forth to an, a, a resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment. That's John 5. You know, we're waiting to see. Yeah. And did I hear you say that y'all believe in transubstantiation? No, you didn't hear that because the word transubstantiation is a 13th century creation. (laughs) Another one. You got me again. (laughs) Yeah. This time, this time, my dear brother, uh, you're not using Protestant terminology, using Latin Catholic terminology. So we do believe that the body and blood of Jesus is a real thing, that the bread and wine, which we offer is transmuted by the coming of the Holy Spirit, and we actually eat the body and blood of Christ. We absolutely believe that, but we don't use Aristotle's concepts to describe it in great detail like the Latins did at uh, uh, the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, where they define transubstantiation. We, We don't accept that definition, and we don't try to define a mystery. Gotcha, gotcha. Oh, I love that. I love that. I love that. So, I'm going to make some guesses about the Reformation. It's, you know, when you're mentioned asceticism and and trembling, it seems like Martin Luther basically came on the scene and said, look, you're free. Jesus' work is from beginning to end. It is finished and, and just completely blew everybody's paradigm up. It seems like you guys wouldn't agree with that simplicity. Well, that's a great question. What is the proper Christian view of asceticism and spiritual uh, effort? You know, Martin Luther, the way that we look at the Protestant Reformation is a schism of a schism. So we've never had a Reformation. So what I'm saying is that um, the Protestant Reformation is an early 16th century reality. We had already been separated from the Latins, at least since 1204. So that's 400 years or rather 300 years, 300 years of, and once we separated from them, a lot of their, what can I say, a lot of their creativity and um, desire to invent the Christian faith, which we contained big time, we contained that. Once we were no longer a a viable containment for them, many of the, many additions to the faith were made by, by the popes. And that, that has continued until this present time. For, for having such a detailed, extensive structure, physical structure for authority, Catholics have not been able to maintain the faith unchanging and get their people to believe it very well at all, uh, and especially in present days, the last hundred years or so. So for us, the Protestant Reformation was a reaction to the additions and abuses of the Catholic Church, especially in the medieval or scholastic period. And Luther, very much, I mean, he was an Augustinian monk, you know, he, was, he, had, he had a very crass view of salvation and of asceticism. You know, he thought if he went up the, you know, the the Scala Sancta, the, the Holy Stairs, yeah. that, that, you know, in, in Rome, on his knees, saying the Our Father, somehow that was going to get his father out of purgatory. That, you know, the Orthodox, that mentality is extremely bizarre. We don't have that kind of, uh, that kind of concept of works and merits. And that's not really even our language. We're very uncomfortable with that language. Luther, in in our mind, Luther went from that, you know, he had his terrible experience where 
you know, he almost got struck by lightning. He almost died. He cried out to St. Anne and said, you know, help me, save me. And he ended up just being like a huge pendulum swing. So he went from, you know, viewing works as kind of uh, basic to righteousness. You have to do these things to win your salvation to works have no place at all because you're free. Now, an Orthodox would say, hey, there's certainly a place in between there. We don't think that works save you and that somehow you're going to do these things. Then God's going to say, I owe you. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. We, we think asceticism is simply a reality that believers have as long as they're in this fallen life because they are they have a great war against sin. The purpose of fasting, the purpose of vigil, the purpose of making prostrations on the ground, all of that is just to draw near to God and stay near to God. It's not to obtain such, it's not to accomplish and, and merit salvation. It's to it's to work against yourself because you are your worst enemy. So it seems like you guys would would put a lot less emphasis on the Holy Spirit than evangelicals. Is is there a, a difference in emphasis on the Holy Spirit? Yes, but it's the exact <laughs> it's the exact opposite of what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Joey. Uh we actually think we do have a, a serious problem with uh, what the Roman Catholics have done uh, to the dogma of the Holy Spirit, which the Protestants sadly have adopted ignorantly, I think. Our, we have the two largest issues between Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism is papal infallibility, which, which is an 1870 doc- doctrine. I mean, literally, that's how late they articulated that. What and what was infallible? What did you just say was infallible? It, papal infallibility. Okay. Yeah, the infallibility of the Pope. Okay. Gotcha. Um, that was that, eight in the 1870s? Did you say eight? I said it. 1870. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But the, the concept, unfortunately, is what emboldened the Pope in the year 1009 to actually do the unthinkable, which is to alter the text of the creed of the church. The church has only had one creed ever. Uh, which is the Nicene Creed. And it's very simple creed, four paragraphs, a paragraph about God, the Father Almighty, a paragraph about his only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, a paragraph about the Holy Spirit, and a paragraph about the church and the sacraments. And in the third paragraph on the Holy Spirit, we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. The Latins and the Protestants have way too low a view of the Holy Spirit because of a change that the Pope made in 1009, where he affirmed that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father filioque and from the Son, which the Church explicitly denied. That was a heresy that arose in the 6th century. The Church spoke very aggressively against it. The Pope, in fact, spoke against it from 800 on until the Franks got to him. And in 1009, he changed the creed. When that happened, our patriarchs stopped praying for the Pope by name as the Bishop of Rome. So that that doesn't mean that we were, you know, we had cut each other off, but we were upset about that. So we look at the West and we think, unfortunately, the Pentecostals aren't Pentecostal enough. Uh, The Charismatics aren't Charismatic enough. They have... They, they, they do what you say, right? right? You know, we just need to lean on the Spirit. That, that's not how the Holy Spirit works, is by just taking you over and short-circuiting your will. But we do believe he's the one who gives life. So if you want to break pornography addiction, and, and personally, it's one of the greatest pastoral issues of our time. I mean, yeah. it is a massive crisis. And the way that that's done is by a greater dependence on the Holy Spirit, inspiring you to crucify your flesh, learning to suffer, learning to endure pain with peace. 
learning to turn away, learning to strengthen your will by his presence. So those aren't antinomies. Those aren't in opposition in our mind. Dependence on the spirit is absolutely key while using every ounce of your strength to, to cut these things off. We have, you know, we have a prayer. I would say, you know, it's probably one of the top three prayers that any Orthodox know. The Jesus prayer, the Our Father, I'd say the top two. But the third is the prayer to the Holy Spirit. And we say it before every single service in the church. And it goes like this. O heavenly King, O comforter, the spirit of truth, who are in all places and fillest all things, treasury of good things and giver of life, come and abide in us, cleanse us from every stain and save our souls, O good one. We say that like multiple times a day. That's cool. So that's cool. there is a serious emphasis upon the Holy Spirit for sure. So in the context of the Trinity, why does it matter where the spirit came from, father or son? I mean, if Jesus is divine and Jesus is God, I don't get the significance of that. Well, I totally understand because uh, the, the the doctrine of the Holy Trinity is not exactly the evangelical specialty, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, hey, yeah. don't don't hold back, man, because uh, I, I I I am I'm in the midst of a lot of evangelicals, but ev- everybody knows that there are so many things that I just am like, what? But again, most, most evangelical, even most evangelical pastors are formally Trinitarian, but practically modalists. I mean, I, they 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 start a prayer. It's almost always to Jesus, or, or they maybe they start they start the prayer to the Father, but then they start talking to him like he is Jesus. I mean, and this isn't just here and there. One of the reasons is because you have no liturgy to guide you and help form you in your way to talk to God. That's that's why we use liturgy. Hey, let's go back to our first question. Do you think Catholics and Protestants are dummies? <laughs> Oh, this is great. And I and I'm I'm joking around. I know for sure that you are not disrespecting Protestants. That is not what I think. Yeah, yeah honestly, I, I, I really don't think that. And as a matter of fact, I would say, you know, in many ways, I'm sure there are many evangelicals who are who are living their life with what they've been given better than I'm living my life with what I've been given. I, I feel like I, I am so objectively rich. When I became Orthodox, I felt like I just was introduced into this castle, which I had never entered before. And in the middle of the first room, there was this treasure box. And I just lifted up the, the lid and I just spent a year like pulling gold crowns out and pearl necklaces. And it was just unbelievable. And then I got to the bottom took a long time. And I'm like, oh my gosh, wow, overwhelmed. And I looked up and I see another door to another room. And I go, I I open that and I go into another, and there's another treasure box. For me, it's been 30 years going into room after room after room. And then I found out that that's actually eternity. St. Gregory the Theologian says that eternity is like, it's like a, it's like a cone that pushes out spirals into the heart of God and never ends because he's inexhaustible. He's uncircumscribable. You're just going to be discovering treasure after treasure after treasure in him and in you because you're made in his image forever. So I have really no excuse. I really, I don't feel like I I really have no excuse compared to when I was a Presbyterian. I had a lot of beautiful things for sure, but forgive me, uh, nothing. It just was nothing. I mean, the liturgy itself, when, when the Orthodox liturgy is so rich and it communicates holiness and reveals God and his character in such a profound way that it's very hard to think wrongly about the Holy Trinity because the entire worship service from beginning to end is Trinitarian, Trinitarian, Trinitarian. So when a Protestant says the church isn't a building, it's it's the people, you would kind of say maybe not so fast. It's not that simple. I would say that. Um, I would say that it's yes and no. So is the church the people of God who in whom Christ dwells? Yes, it is. 
And thank God, because we didn't have buildings, especially in major Roman cities, until 312 and the legalization of Christian Christianity by the Edict of Milan under Emperor Constantine. We were yeah. illegal assemblies. You know, we had to worship in people's homes. The only archaeo- Joy, the only archaeological remains that we have of churches in the first three centuries are the corners of the empire where there weren't Roman military garrisons to knock them down. Dang. That's it. So for us, uh, we met in catacombs. We met in, in cemetery tombs. We met in our houses. But literally, the second, the second that we were legalized, we were like a compressed spring. And churches just exploded, church buildings. And Christians have always considered church buildings to be objectively holy and uniquely the dwelling places of God. So just think of the Jewish temple in the Old Testament. When Solomon built it and consecrated it, he knelt down in front of it, and the glory of God came and descended on a building. And the smoke of God's glory filled it that the priests couldn't even go in. That's the model for Christian church building. All traditional Christian churches are built off the, after the model of the temple. A holy of holies, a holy place, and a narthex. That threefold, that threefold structure came from the temple of the Jews, which God instructed Solomon to build based upon the model that Moses saw on Mount Sinai when he built the tabernacle. So God God infuses stones, for sure, and he dwells in holy places that are consecrated to him. Uh, He can leave them, for sure, if the people are sinful. I mean, when Jesus says in Revelation, I stand at the door and knock, you know, whoever hears my voice and opens up, I will come into him and sup with him. Many evangelicals don't understand the picture there, because the picture is, a church building, and Jesus is outside. This was a this was a letter to the church, right? This right. wasn't a letter to unbelievers. I mean, Billy Graham did a great job using that verse to address unbelievers, but this is not Jesus to unbelievers. This is Jesus. This is Jesus to his people who are living so pathetically. The Laodiceans were so worldly that he wanted nothing to do with them, and he was outside. And the supper was his supper. <laughs> the supper was That's holy great. communion. He's like, let me in, and I will be with you in that. So, I mean, he can leave. But uh, the answer is that he's in his people and he's in the building if it's consecrated as a church uh, and it's a holy thing, which is why Europe, Christian, you know, Europe is a Christian creation in the center of all European towns and villages is a church. And it's always on the highest level and it's always the biggest building because churches were viewed as the most important building. They, they They play the place. They play the role historically of what hospitals do to modern secular America. Today, the most expensive buildings in all of America are medical centers. But that was that was that's completely new. That's like last 50 years. Before that, all was churches. So it it seems like Catholics would say man is infallible, one of them, since the late 1800s, which is mind-boggling. Protestants would say the Bible is infallible. Do you guys say the church is infallible? That's what it feels like when I talk to my brother. The church yeah, is infallible. That's true. See, and that's that is that's tricky, man. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around that. So in Acts two, did the Holy Spirit birth the church, or did Peter birth the church? Like, do you guys? How did the church come about? The church is the creation of the Holy Spirit. No question about that. But notice that once the church is created and imbued with the Spirit, it becomes a a, a spiritual reality on the earth, and as such, represents Christ on the earth. So for us, the church is the continuation of the incarnation on the earth. So Paul learned this in a very drastic way, Joey. I mean, he was killing us, stealing our people, kidnapping them, taking them for judgment, standing there when Peter was murdered. And when he was on his way to Damascus, the Lord appeared to him in glory. Actually, the 
Luke St. Luke says the sun was at noon and he appeared brighter than the sun. So the, the, the most bright earthly orb was dark compared to the glory of Christ. Paul was blinded, but look what Jesus said to him. He didn't say, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting these individual people? He said, why are you persecuting me? Jesus was long dead and, and, re and re resurrected and in heaven at the right hand of the Father. But Paul, by touching believers, was touching Christ. So the identity of Jesus and the church on the earth is, is intimate. To touch yeah. the church is to touch Christ. To, so Christ's infallibility is a, part, is a part of the church. And how did the church solve her first issue of heresy, her first issue of theological controversy? She didn't get the Bible out. She didn't pull out Paul's letters. What she did is she gathered a council, the Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15, of representatives from all over the church. The apostles came and they debated. And to the, my Latin brothers, I would say, note, it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to decree this. And they insisted that all the believers accept that judgment. And if not, they were put out of the church. So there's no concept of individual judgment over church over churches, the church's teaching. Nobody could take their Bible and say, I'm sorry, I disagree with that. And, and actually be in the church. And there was the confidence that when the church gathers in council, the Holy Spirit will guide us to the right answer, which is why they said it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to yeah. judge this. What, what I like about orthodoxy and what I like about what my brother is involved in is it it's like, I would say, hey, you read one verse, you check out all the denominations, you're going to hear a thousand different things. And my brother would say, exactly. That's why <laughs> we're following the lead of the original church. Like, do you guys know by name? Like, can can y'all trace it back to James? Oh, sure. Uh, if you, you know, the, the first real church history that we have in detail was written by the church historian Eusebius. He was good friends with Emperor Constantine. In fact, he wrote the encomium for, for Constantine's 30th anniversary as, as emperor. And he records the lists of all the major sees, the apostolic sees, of their bishops all the way back to the apostles. And if you go, if you travel, I'm, for instance, if we were together and we went to Rome or we went to Constantinople or we went to Alexandria or to Antioch or to Jerusalem, you would go into the patriarchal headquarters, wherever the patriarch is, and you would see usually on the wall in stone the name of every bishop who has occupied that see all the way back to the apostolic age. So would you say that is it's an act of faith that you got that the church is infallible because when when I believed that the Bible was infallible, I read this book by F. F. Bruce called The Canon of Scripture, and I literally I was just like, oh, I'm I'm gonna figure it out now how the Bible how I can depend on the Bible's infallibility. I'm gonna read this book and I'm gonna get it. And I got to the end of it, I was like, dadgummit, F. F. Bruce, you mean to tell me it was a bunch of guys getting together and deciding the canon of Scripture? I was like, shoot, I thought there's gonna be you know something else. I don't see how else you guys can walk in that truth other than faith, because I mean, we all know how humans are just so capable of messing things up. So you guys have to have faith. Lord God, we believe as, as children that you have been guiding your church. And so we stand on that and it's an act of faith. What else would it be? <laughs> I mean, if, if you're a believer, I mean, we believe, yeah. we believe in the scriptures because yeah. our savior believed in the scriptures and taught us to believe in the scriptures. He he quoted numerous scriptures and said, God says, and quoted it. Right. So th this is why we, we don't believe the scriptures because we've done some great study of the manuscripts and it shows this. I right. mean, scholars do that. I mean, good for them. But yeah. that, that's not why Christians believe in that. And we certainly believe in the fallibility of man. What we don't believe is that the fallibility of man is greater 
than God's faithfulness. So we do, we believe that God is using idiots like me uh, to perform miracles all the time and that my sins are not going to keep the Eucharist from taking place. Yeah. So how do you guys read the Bible differently from Protestants since you're so familiar with with both? Um, I would say the first, I think, thing that you would notice shocking is we, we read it liturgically. And what I mean by that is that for most of church history, nobody had a Bible. I mean, this is a 15th century reality, and even then, no one had it. I mean, one of the things that Emperor Constantine did at great cost as an emperor was he commissioned the making of 50 gospel books with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John for the 50 most important churches in the empire. And and that was just to get the gospel on the altar. I mean, before that, the the chances that a church is going to have a Bible is about this big. We had scrolls. Most Christians had maybe a cer- certain passages written out. Sometimes they would roll them up and put them in a little chain around their neck in a little box. It was it was so precious to have a portion of the scripture uh, because it was just rare. You know, books were rare. So most Christians, the, the place that they heard the scriptures were was in church. So this is why, I mean, when, when people come to Orthodox services and you go to the liturgy, there is so much attention paid to the readings of the scriptures. We, yeah. read, we, wait, we, we, we read way, way more of the Bible in services than evangelicals do. Uh, and, we, and we do it all standing and really quietly because hearing is the traditional way of, of interacting with the scriptures, not, not reading it. Also, when someone like myself when, when, or, or yourself, when we become orthodox, you have to promise. The priest asks you to make a promise. Publicly, by the way, this goes, you have to renounce your heresies and you have to make affirmations. And one of those affirmations is that you'll read the scriptures the way St. Peter says in Second Peter that no passage of scripture is subject to private interpretation. And so you, you promise to read the scriptures in a way that the church has, meaning you'll understand passages the way that the church fathers have interpreted them and have talked about them, the way that the liturgical services chant about them, because we have different passages of scripture appointed for every weekend and every service. And so, and then we have a bunch of hymnody that the church has written over the centuries that explains the passage. And we have icons that also document the passage and explain kind of the meaning of the passages. And so you, you pledge as an Orthodox that you may, you can have as many personal opinions as you want, but you don't, you, you don't talk about them. You certainly don't teach them. And yeah. I, as a one of the things I had to do when I became no longer Presbyterian but Orthodox, was basically take a whole chunk of my theology and divide it into two: that which is clear and absolutely of the church, which has to be preached, and that which is possible and my opinion, which my parishioners should never hear about. Were they right about everything? It's a question that I ask my brother, and I'm sure he'll be interested in hearing what you, you have to say. Has has the church, and when I say the church, I mean the Orthodox Church, were they right about everything right from the beginning? Or is it possible for you guys to go wrong for a little bit and God veer you back into the right direction? And a, a, a low-hanging fruit example is there's got to be some leaders in y'all's history who had slaves. I mean, I, I there's got to have been, and we would all recognize, nah, that wasn't God's will. So would that be an example of the church getting something wrong, but then the sanctification process of the church as a whole? I'll say this first, the church, because the church knows herself to be her, who she is, she almost never speaks. So contrary, forgive me, I don't mean to be in any way, hobnob- hobnob- I mean, you are an evangelical. Evangelicals love have traditionally loved confessions. 
And they write, especially in the, se- uh, the 17th century and the 18th century, were just confession after confession after confession in great detail. And the problem with that is that by saying too much, you have to go back and revise. So all of those confessions ended up getting revised. So as a Presbyterian, right, we had the Westminster Confession of Faith. When I was became licensed as a Presbyterian minister, I was in front of the Presbytery, you know, the, the, the other elders, the other pastors that were evaluating me. I took 15 explicit exceptions where I thought the Westminster Confession of Faith was wrong. That's <laughs> right. So see, that is not how the church works. The church doesn't talk unless she has to talk. And all of the ecumenical councils met in response to heresy. I mean, we were talking about the Jerusalem Council, right? Acts 15. That council happened because Jewish converts to Christianity were going around trying to convince pagans they had to become Jews before they could become Christians. They had to get circumcised. They had to start eating like they were Jews. And and the church had this huge controversy. So she called the council to answer that. All the councils in the church's history are called in response to the rising of heresy. The fact that heresy exists in certain local churches is evidence that the church can go wrong, of course. But that's portions of the church. We trust that the church per se, which is the body of Christ, is guarded by Christ himself and can never fall into heresy. Only portions can. Individual can. People's free will remains intact. So priests can go bad. Bishops can go bad, for goodness sake. St. John Chrysostom, our most famous preacher in the history of the church, he says the road to hell is lined with the skulls of bishops and priests. Damn. 100 times. Okay. So of course people can go wrong, but Jesus still said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then you see in the apocalypse in revelation two and three, you have seven churches. They all receive personal messages from Jesus. Two of them are okay. Only two, five are in serious trouble. Some are like about to get cut off. And Jesus was clear. If you don't pull yourself together, I'm going to blow out your candlestick, which means you're tough, you're toast, you're done. You're done. And the, the gospel is going to go somewhere else. And the church is going to move over there and, and win people whose hearts are, are ready, to, ready to receive. So absolutely, the, the church, meaning the churches, can go bad. But the church itself, corporately, we believe that Jesus is the one who's guarding its integrity and its purity. And he'll, he'll do gotcha. that again. How do you guys see prayer? Because I, I'm kind of at a point now to where I just, I'm like, it's just mysterious. I'm pretty sure it helps me, but I've prayed for many, many people to be healed and rescued, et cetera, et cetera. And those prayers weren't answered. So I don't know what to say about prayer. I, I mean, I, I'm a pastor and I don't know what to say about prayer. <laughs> so please help me before you go. <laughs> well, well, compared to everything else you've asked, this is the, the question that the church could answer the most. The fathers say that prayer is the purpose of human life and is the highest of all human creations. I love that. It is uh, literally the goal of life, which is to live in communion with God the way that we were fashioned. So recovering our prayer, nourishing our prayer, learning to pray. And that doesn't mean supplication. What, what you made, When you said prayer, you, you basically meant supplication. Yeah. Yeah. For an Orthodox, that's like way down the list. Mostly prayer is about being with God, adoring him, enjoying him, communing with him. We get to supplication, but that's 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 at the end. And and that reflects Paul's prayers. Sometimes I tell I've got a sheet with every single prayer Paul ever prayed, and I'll give it to, you know, someone in an evangelical church. I'm like, does this sound like any of our prayers? No, not at all. Awesome. 
Thank you. And I, I, I would consider maybe in the next six months or so just having you back on so we can explore some other stuff. I really appreciate it. Have a good one. Thanks, Joy. One thing that we forget about in this discussion is Jesus didn't leave out ourselves in that. He said, love others as you love yourself. Am I loving myself to just stand there and take an ass whipping? I don't think so. That's not being loving to myself. That's not taking care of me. Yeah. William and Waylon, uh, Robbie, you know, you saw them grow up. They're still growing. Mm-hmm. And Waylon was at a place in his uh, probably two where communication was still kind of limited. But he had no self-control when it came to his anger with William. And so you got this little two-year-old punk who gets mad and then literally hurts William. And William is the kindest, most gentle, yeah. teddy bear sort of boy. And he's just like, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to hurt him. And I said, yeah. William, you've got to teach him that he can't do this. So I'm not telling you to hurt Waylon, but I am telling you to stop Waylon. And if it accidentally hurts him a little bit, that's okay. But you've got to teach your brother that you're not a walk, you know, a doormat. And honestly, <laughs> William took that to heart. And sometimes he would cry. He would come in and say, Waylon did so I pushed him on the ground. I feel so bad. But, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I li- but in but in some ways he he ended. You know, I think the whole the whole thrust. You can laugh about the bear mesh thing. First, the context of her punishment didn't fit the crime. It's like you were squatting on her property right. and you bear mesh went. Right. But if they were walking at her with a pistol, right, and firing rounds, mm-hmm. it's like okay. Well, now I'm gonna I'm gonna de-escalate the violence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For her to spray bear mates, the squatting, you've escalated the violence. Yeah. So it's about where are we moving? Are we, is it the cycle of violence of escalating or de-escalating? And man, even getting into scripture and the progression of scripture, I think that the cycle of violence was so out of control that in the Old Testament it was, okay, eye, and eye, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, okay? Right. Let's start there. Let's start there. Because you guys obviously don't know how to... Mm. It's going to always get out of control. So let's start there. And then we see the progression in Jesus of, you've heard it said, mm-hmm. I for not two for a right. two. But now, yeah. turn to the cheek, persecute you, those that you're asked to you know, mm. get the show off your back, walk one mile, walk another. That's a that's a real de-escalation. Yeah. 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 Yeah, 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 yeah. It becomes yeah. a validation. It yeah. becomes a validation. So yeah, it's like in the, for me, the question is how can I deescalate the violence? Yeah. Priscilla and I went, I think a year into our marriage, we went to the Bahamas and we, ba- I saw this playing out. There was a guy that, so there were two teenage daughters kind of walking in front of their parents and someone from the Bahamas came up and basically was trying to push drugs on them, on, on the girls. And the dad immediately is like, excuse me, is there anything you want to talk about? And I stopped. And I kept my eyes on it because I was like, if violence happens, I'm going to help this guy. And I thought, you know, in that scenario right there, what if that guy said F you and pushed him and then came after him? I, that's that's where mm. pacifism just doesn't work. It just doesn't. So, I, yeah, you know, but maybe I'll, Jesus wanted it to because this this life is so finite. He's like, OK, you get killed. So what? I would say um, I know I resonate a lot with uh, Priscilla in this. Like we're both very high justice. Like that's, um, you know just fairness and protection of human life and stuff like that. And so like getting me riled up is usually some, somebody's being treated unfairly, somebody's being bullied or threatened or whatever. And, um, and as far as like me getting close to fighting someone or protecting someone, it's always in that kind of situation. And when I was, mm-hmm. I was in Argentina um, with my missions team, it was, I think there was like 
five females and one other male. And we used to have to take these really long uh, bus rides and uh, like nine hour, nine, 10 hour bus rides through the night to go to like a conference or something. And we were doing that, you know, we're sleeping on this bus ride, but like my protective heart was just like not sleeping. Right. And I just kind of like, you know, kept waking up and checking every now and then. And then I, I turn around and I see this guy standing over like the girls on my team, just looking at them, watching them sleep. Gee. And so I just, I turned That's around not creepy. and I was like, do you have a problem? No, no, whatever. And then I said something to him. I was just, uh, I, don't, I don't know what I said, but I threatened him in Spanish. And then like, and it's like this guy that's bigger than me, of course. And like, yeah, <laughs> I yeah. was literally about to go at them. Like I would have gotten violent in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think, and I still to this day think that for some reason that would have warranted that because it was like protecting. But yeah, I wonder like where that marker is and how we measure that. I think as a human society, we don't measure it well. We are just yeah. kind of irrational and, and quick to rage which yep. is probably why that verse mm-hmm. comes in yep. slow to anger and slow yep. to wrath. But yeah, so anyway. Yeah, if, yeah, I totally think it's possible. I think I'll eventually see Jesus face to face. And I, I think there's a really good chance that he says, dude, you know, and he'll say it with a smile because he's not mad, but he'd be like, what else did I have to do? I told everybody to follow me and I literally made sure that you guys knew that I could have called tons of angels to basically kick ass and take names. And I didn't, I sat there, took it and I won. That's how I won. Like I could totally see Jesus. Like how clearer did I have to be, you know? And I'll say, I'm sorry. 